0: nice light passage for this beautiful summer Sunday. (laughs) You know, here at Taproot, we do. We teach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, which means that occasionally we will run into those passages that many Christians just refuse to read and many churches won't preach. We're dealing with the difficult topic of discipline in the church. And as I've been saying through these past weeks, it's Very important for us to grasp the biblical understanding of discipline in the church, especially in the context that we're in here in Seattle, where we're dealing with multiple conversations around the nature of church authority, how do pastors relate to the people, how do the people relate to the pastors, what does the Bible say about church authority and discipline. Very, very difficult topic for us to discuss, but very important that we grasp it biblically and live it thoroughly, faithfully, and by the power of the Spirit. I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna dive right in. The sun is out in Seattle, and I want to get out into it as bad as you guys do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the church, not just Top Root Church, but the church. Today, across the globe, there are literally over a billion Christians in this 24-hour period across the globe who are opening Bibles, depending on the Holy Spirit, singing songs to your glory. And that community of people, not defined by names or the pastors that preach, not defined by their buildings, but that body of believers are the inbreaking of the kingdom to come. The church is a new humanity A community of souls becoming fully human, living the way that you always intended, and discipline, Father, directs, corrects, refines and defines our belief and our behavior that we might be a missionary people representing the kingdom to come. Discipline, Lord Jesus, you have given to us, not to punish us, but to produce in us the fruits of righteousness and fullness of joy. This morning as we wrap up this section in the book of 1 Corinthians and we begin our preliminary discussions on sexual immorality, I pray that our hearts would be open. Lord, I wanna pray for the ones that have been wounded in here, hurt in some way, maybe a real hurt, maybe just a perceived hurt, that God, you would bring healing. I wanna pray for those in this room this morning who are being obstinate. You're trying to discipline for their good, and they're denying your work in their lives. I want to pray for the the friend who's been brought, the family member who's sitting through this passage wondering, oh my goodness, what are these people doing? Father, may you illuminate the mind and the heart of every person in this room listening to this passage. May the gospel be present in these places, in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls. And God, may you fill us with such joy as we surrender to your good work in our lives. We glorify you now in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Yeah. So I heard this great anecdote this past week. In 1976, Democratic presidential candidate, Jimmy Carter, scandalized the globe. He gave Playboy magazine an interview opportunity. He was the first presidential candidate to give an interview to Playboy magazine, and in the mid-70s, Playboy was still considered pornography. The globe erupted. Not just the United States, but all of the political pundits had something to say about the audacity, the scandalous nature of a presidential candidate giving an interview to Playboy magazine. Now, you may ask, what did he say in the midst of this interview? He literally quoted the words of Jesus. To look upon a woman lustfully is to commit adultery. Now, did this matter to the commentators and the writers of the mid-70s as this scandal erupted across the globe, that there's Jimmy Carter, Democratic presidential candidate, quoting the words of Jesus, to look upon a woman lustfully is to commit adultery in your heart on the pages of Playboy magazine. Did it matter to them that he was quoting Jesus in his association with Playboy magazine? No. He was guilty by association. It didn't matter what he said or to whom he said it. The fact that his name was represented in Playboy magazine made him guilty now of course times have certainly changed playboy magazine actually doesn't even show nude photos any longer as of about a year ago because internet pornography has made playboy magazine potato chips suffice it to say our guilt by association still prevails in our culture in other words we are defined by who we associate with or who we don't associate with. We influence the people that we intermingle with and we are influenced by those that intermingle with us. We judge by the associations around us and we are judged by those who we associate with. Now, for some of us, I think we have to be really honest with ourselves in who we associate with. For some of us, we associate with good people because we're trying not to look as bad as we feel that we are. (laughs) For others of us, we associate with bad people because we're trying to bring to them what we believe is good. The whole point of our introduction this morning being... There are groups that we associate with and should, and there are groups that we should not associate with and won't, and there are varying reasons for that. And this is exactly what Paul is laying out for us. Remember here, in the city of Corinth, this little frat party of a church was unruly, they were divisive, they were getting drunk at communion, they had all sorts of sinful problems. And so Pastor Paul, Parent Paul, is coming to this little community of faith, and he's saying to them, I love you, you're not living in accord with what you believe, your behavior is denying your belief, and so I'm writing to correct you, I'm writing to direct you unto the glory of the Lord and for your ultimate good. Last week we introduced this topic of church authority and excommunication, and these heavy words, and today we wrap it up, as Paul now defines these two groups of people. Now, understand something. We as a Christian community, as a body of believers, are commissioned to a mission. We are literally sent by the maker of the universe into this world to associate with certain people But because we are a certain people, there are times and seasons, points and places, and people associations that we are not to engage in. And Paul is laying that out here for us this morning. Now, before we get to the passage, a couple things. This is difficult for you and I to listen to for one primary reason. You believe that your feelings are more true than God's word. You see, these difficult topics of discipline delve into the realm of awkward conversations, hard choices. We're talking about excommunication. Paul uses aggressive language here. You're not even to have lunch with somebody like this, he says, this person. And we, tolerant, kind, merciful, accepting American Christians recoil from that, and we say, it can't be. It's too harsh, it's too mean, how is that loving? So we decide and we believe that our feelings are more true and more worth trusting than God's word. Along with this, we believe that we have the answer to how we can most help people. We believe that we can help people according to our definition of love, our definition of mercy, our definition of acceptance, our definition of tolerance, Rather than God's word. You see, your definition, my definition of love, when it's defined by feelings, is a far cry. There's a large chasm between that definition of love and God's love, which is perfect. So I'm exhorting you pastorally this morning as we wrap up these passages on excommunication and church discipline to make the decision my feelings cannot trump God's word. I am committed to what Christ has revealed in the text, and if I will live in accord and in submission to the text itself, it will bear great fruit in my life and in the lives of those around me. We're going to look at a few things here this morning. We're going to look at two distinct groups of people who have totally different beliefs, but the same behavior. We're going to talk about why that's an issue. Then we'll look at what Paul says... The group of people is that we as Christians are supposed to associate with. We're supposed to hang out with these types of people. Be with them. Then we'll talk about people that we are not to associate with. And we'll squirm in our seats and we'll get very uncomfortable and we'll find ourselves saying it can't be and it doesn't feel right. But if we'll trust and by faith live in accord with God's word, we will see fruit for his glory and our good. And then we'll close on a real happy note this morning talking about judgment. (laughs) Sometimes preaching the Bible is so difficult, just a pastoral confession. (laughs) Let's start out here this morning by looking at these two distinct groups of people who have totally different beliefs, but they're exhibiting the same behavior. Paul defines these two groups of people here in our passage this morning, the first group being the people of the world. He says, I wrote to you in my letter, we think there were about four letters, two of them have been lost, that were written to the church in the city of Corinth. Paul says, I I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he makes this caveat, this definition. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. He defines one category of people as the people of the world. The people who still live by the value system of the world. The people who define their belief system either by their internal subjective senses, by what pop culture tells them by what their grandpa taught them, by what professors tell them, the system of the world that's temporal and actually ruled by the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians chapter two. Now the second group of people that Paul defines here are those who would claim to be believers. He says in verse 11, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of, and then he gives us this list. Two distinct groups with differing beliefs, but the same behavior. And Paul wants to address that. Let's start here. You behave according to what you believe is most true. We can confess with our mouths one thing and do something entirely different. And in that different behavior that contradicts what we say we believe, we are actually revealing what our truest, deepest beliefs are. Let me give you a silly example of this. Let's talk about veganism. Veganism. Imagine you meet a man and he says to you, I am an ardent vegan. I believe that animal products are not good for your health. It endangers society. I believe that we shouldn't be killing animals to eat them. We should only be loving them and caring for them, and so I am an ardent vegan. You decide to befriend this vegan, and he invites you to a vegan dinner party one night. So you show up with your carrots and your celery and your ranch dressing that has no eggs in it because you too want to be an ardent vegan. You believe what he says. You arrive a little bit early and he arrives a little bit after you, maybe 10 minutes late. And he shows up and there's tinfoil over all of these steaming piles of food. And you're thinking to yourself, wow, professional vegan food. This is going to be amazing. And he unveils the tinfoil and there's rack of lamb and smoked turkey and chicken and even some little French done Rabbit. <laughs> and, you, and you scratch your head and, and you say to yourself, wait a second, I, I thought you said that you were an ardent vegan. And he says to you, I am an ardent vegan. I believe with all of my heart that it's terrible to kill animals, that you shouldn't eat them. But wait, you've got rack of lamb and, and French done Rabbit and, and chicken eggs. And, and your behavior is not lining up with your belief. The vegan, he may confess with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, I believe that it's wrong to kill animals. But if he has rack of lamb and French done rabbit at the vegan dinner party, he does not truly believe that. Okay, let's talk about Christianity in the West. Let's talk about Christianity in our current culture. Any given stat, any given poll, whether it's from Pew Research or Gallup or whoever you may plug for this type of information, is going to give you some astronomical number stating that there are this many Christians in the United States of America. Now, Christians have a set of beliefs that determines our behaviors, beliefs about who God is, belief about what is right and wrong? Belief about sexual morality, belief about money, belief about giving, belief about generosity, belief about serving, belief about social justice. But what I find tragic is you may have Gallup poll and pure research stats that give this astronomical number of Christians that live in the United States and confess, I believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. But what you see is the behavior of cultural Christianity in the United States truly reveals the deepest beliefs. And I can tell you that at the center of the core of the belief in the United States of America is not Jesus Christ. Danny, don't judge. Didn't Jesus say judge not? Wait, 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 wait. Let's read a passage here. Is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? It's going to be heavy this morning. It's the Bible. It's good for our souls. But we must come to realize that we live in a culture that is post-Christian, and the vestiges of cultural Christianity are going down the toilet bowl of immorality and confusion in this culture. And there is a group of people in this room right here who are being called to say, I believe this, And my behavior is going to reveal what my actual belief is. Now let's look at some of the behaviors that were occurring in the city of Corinth, both in unbelievers, people of the world, and in the believing community of faith. It's a list, a laundry list that's somewhat dirty. First of all, The sexually immoral. This is the Greek word pornea. It is basically a junk drawer word. The way I like to define this word for you is if you are asking, can I do this as a Christian and it's not with your wife that you're married to for the rest of your life till you die, that's pornea. Period. Could I do this, Danny, if it's not my wife who I'm married to for the rest of my life, or my husband who I'm married to? in heterosexual monogamous marriage, could I do this? Could I sample with this? Could I mess around with this as a single person? Could I go this way? How far could I go? All of that's pornea. What about on the computer, Danny? Because that's just, you know, watching a screen. No, that's pornea. What about in my mind, just fantasizing? No, that's pornea. And Paul says there's two groups of people here. There's the sexually immoral of the world, Which we should expect that's normal that's what we're trained in that's what i was trained in and then there's the sexually immoral of the church some of you this morning are engaged in unrepentant porneia as believers in christ and at the root of that is not me saying change your behavior i'm challenging you to say and ask yourself, what do I truly believe about sex? Now, when I get back from vacation, Pastor Jim and Pastor Darren are gonna take us through the rest of these chapters. We're gonna do a little three-part series on sexual immorality. We're gonna talk about why God says this is wrong. We're gonna talk about how it doesn't benefit us, how it actually harms us when we engage in pornea, when we live in sexually immoral ways. We're gonna talk about all the good that comes to ourselves and the world when we engage in biblical practices of sexuality. We're gonna talk about homosexuality. We're gonna talk about transgenderism. Suffice it to say, if you're asking The question this morning can I, should I, or if you are engaged in something where you're going, should I be doing this, and it's not your wife, your husband, who you're heterosexually married to for life, repent, stop now. Number two, there was greed. One of the commentators that I read on this particular word said that this word means those obsessed with the unrestricted longing for possessions which sets aside the rights of others. They are the self-aggrandizers whose aims in life are entirely directed by self-interest and the urge to gain the edge over others. Love of self replaces love of God in the struggle for survival and in achieving the ambition to make it to the top. There's an interesting thing happening in our political climate. Now, I am not allowed to persuade you as a nonprofit leader of an organization which candidate to vote for but I am allowed to propose to you points of thought. There's a particular candidate in the field today whose name rhymes with rump. (laughs) What? I'm not trying to influence you at all. Who, as I read this definition of greedy, those obsessed with the unrestricted longing for possessions which set aside the rights of others, self-aggrandizers whose aim in life is entirely directed by self-interest and the urge to gain edge over others. Love of self replaces love of God in the struggle for survival and achieving the ambition to make it to the top. There's this interesting dynamic happening because a lot of what has carried Trump to where he is today is the evangelical vote. There's an association with him Now, Trump actually is learning, he's growing, he just now developed, he just now commissioned an evangelical council and on that council are men who have publicly tweeted, blogged their disapproval of him. But the, the wrestling match that each of us should have as Christians is who are we lending our support to? Who are we engaged with? Who are we associating with? And are we associating with somebody of the world? Fine, that's one category of practice. Hillary Clinton is going to be, obviously of the world, a non-believer. And if you cast your vote for her, you're casting your vote for a non-believer, good or bad or ugly or beautiful. Trump, I don't know who or what he is. And we as evangelicals must question, who are we associating ourselves with? Now, if you cast your vote for Trump, I want you to be thinking about these things from a biblical perspective. Swindlers. The swindlers of the world and the swindlers of the church, who are these people? This is the bad business guys. And you know, I have found it shocking since I came into the Christian community. I expected it in the world. I did. I expected my bosses to try to diamond nickel me, to reduce my hourly wage, to to highlight every point of critique, to not give me that raise. But I can tell you, I was shocked by, I can think of two people right now, not in this community, their business practices in the name of Jesus were not only negligent, but downright, disgustingly sinful. Sinful, like full-blown, cooking the books, manipulative, lying, oppressing, terrible to their employees, all in the name of Jesus. And their behavior was belying, it was was revealing their true belief that for them, manipulation and money and ambition are more important than what the Bible says about being a good master, a good employer. The idolaters. Corinth, we've learned, was a city of worship. Millions upon millions of gods to be worshipped, just like the Seattle Metro. God's everywhere, promises of salvation from this God, promises of comfort from this God, promises of security from this God, promises of pleasure from that God, just like our city. And so it would be expected that those of the world would be looking to any God possible to find salvation, security, joy, peace, comfort, pleasure. But then within the church was rampant in Corinth the continuation of worshiping these false gods, just like in the church in the United States. In the name of Jesus, I trust money. In the name of Jesus, I trust my own definition of sexuality and sexual immorality. In the name of Jesus, I trust whatever it may be. And all we do is we put in the name of Jesus in the front of it, and we need to be wary of that. Drunkards, it's interesting to me that Paul makes in his list drunkards for the believing community. And Paul later on in 1 Corinthians Chapter 11 is gonna be addressing the issue of these guys getting drunk at communion. Drunkenness is simply the symptom of idolatry. It's the pursuit of pleasure or the pursuit of escape or the pursuit of comfort over trusting Jesus for pleasure and comfort and protection. That's all drunkenness is. And then finally, the reviler. Paul says that the reviler, and he only lists the reviler with the group that confesses to be brothers, is the one who causes division, We all know this person. Maybe we've been this person. The reviler is the one who salts every conversation just to see what he could draw, what she could draw out of the conversation and usually salts it with discussion about somebody else and their issues or their things. And I find it interesting that Paul doesn't put reviler in the list of people of the world, but in the church. And this is what I have found to be true. The church has the most cruel and wicked tongue I have ever heard in my life. Most of my friends that are non-believers and not at church today, people like my dad, people like my brother Troy, friends that I have in culture, would not be as malicious and as vindictive with their words as the church has been. We think that we are doing right when we're talking about other believers or other people with a malicious or a vicious or a vindictive intent and Paul says that is the same as sexual immorality, greed, swindling, idolatry, and drunkenness. And what you believe is being revealed by your behavior that love and mercy and gentleness and tenderness and prayer are more important manipulating the conversation to gain an edge over somebody else. And in essence, the beginning of vindictive, vicious words, James tells us, is the beginning of murder. And I think that the church behaves in a murderous way in ways that no other community in this world acts. I think we need to repent of that church. I really do. I think that we need to take a big, deep, long breath and look inwardly and say, how am I speaking about people? In a church like Taproot, where we've had seasons of extreme conflict, how am I talking about people? How am I relating my personality and my hope for them, my redemption of them? How? And I can tell you one thing before we move on from this. If we will repent of this, there is a sweetness that comes in the community of Christ that's like no other thing in this world. If we're able to say, okay, here's where I've been wrong, here's what I've done wrong, here's what I've said wrong, and sit down with that person and say, here's what I've done wrong, here's what I've said wrong. There is something so kingdom, so eternal, so beautiful, and it exists in no other place in the world other than here. But it starts with us saying, what have I been saying? Am I being divisive? Am I being careful? Am I being cautious? Am I being prayerful? Prayerful. Who are we to associate with as Christians? There's these two distinct groups of people, and the Bible only leaves us two options. There are believers and non-believers in the world. There are people of the world and not of the world. There are people under the sway and influence of the world and the devil, and people under the sway and influence of the Spirit and Jesus Christ himself. Who are we to associate with and i can guarantee you most of us have gotten this completely backwards we think to ourselves we must only associate with those who are led by the spirit and under king jesus but paul does the opposite of that he says look i didn't tell you not to associate with the sexually immoral people of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world Paul says you've been sent into this world to associate with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. You've been sent into this world to associate with the greedy and the swindlers and the revilers and the idolaters and the sexually immoral. We should all have transgender gay friends if you're a Christian. That's what Paul's saying. We should all have friends that are embezzling in their business practices right now if we're a Christian. That's what Paul is saying. Danny, this is scandalous. No, this is the book. This is God's word. This is the reality of who we're going to be as a people in the coming generations of the church in a world that ostracizes and marginalizes us and makes us minimal now. We must again return to what we have always been throughout the history of the world, a grassroots movement of leaven in the loaf of culture, associating with the greedy and the swindlers and the embezzlers and the transgenders and the gays and the whoever it may be that the Bible defines as in danger because of their sin. This is who we're to associate with, and what we have done instead, and we need to repent of this as well is three things. Number one, when it comes to living and associating with this culture, Christianity has chosen three things. Number one, to cut and run. The cut and run Christian is the guy living in in the cave right now. He's probably got a stack of like left behind books to his left and some earthquake preparedness stuff to his right. And he has left the city. He has no access online. He doesn't watch TV. He listens to no music unless it's Christian music, Gaither Brothers, or whatever. He has cut and run from cultural association because it's too dirty, it's defiling, it's too dangerous. The cut and run Christian is disconnected from cultural realities and cultural understandings, from cultural rhythms, and the cut and run Christian is the reason that people look at Christianity and go, You guys are so strange. It's like we're speaking Japanese. Our movies are always one step behind movies. Our music is always one step behind music because we're trying to cut and paste things from the world and sanitize it, and you can't do that. So the cut and run Christian lives in his cave, doesn't listen to anything, only hangs out with other Christians when all the while is actually being called to be a creative, a creator of culture. You guys realize through the history of the church, the greatest artists, some of the most profound scientists, Isaac Newton, Galileo, Copernicus, Bible-believing Christians, they were the professors of their day and age at the UW. They were the artists. They were the innovative songwriters. Much of the hymns that we sing, especially the hymns of Luther, were pub songs that Luther redeemed and made Christian songs by theology added to these tunes. So he took songs that drunk dudes at the bar were singing, infused them with glorious gospel theology, and he created culture that thousands of years later were still singing. Today, take inventory and look through your life. Do I have non-Christian friends or have I cut and run? Have I cut and run from Christian culture? And yes, guys, listen, TV, magazine, movie, it is very difficult. It's very difficult. It is defiling. But we live in a balanced way where we are guarding our hearts, guarding our minds, and trying to learn and listen to the rhythms and not just disconnect from what's happening. And for those of you, when we get into our parenting series this fall, for those of you that have preteens and teenagers, you better know how to use Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, and read it, whatever other thing I'm trying to keep up as much as you are, you better know how to engage with this culture because your kids are swimming in it. You cannot cut and run as a parent. That's a sermon series coming up this October. Number two, the Christian community in the world and in associating with the world has chosen to condemn it. What I mean by that is We see the world, at least the people that I've listened to over these years, we see people of the world, and we automatically don't see them through a hope of restoration and redemption. We see them through a lens of condemnation and certain doom. So a lot of the conversation going on around the the head-spinning moral confusion that we live in currently is, this is it. It's over. We automatically view the transgender and the homosexual movement as condemnable, meaning there's no hope. There's no hope of restoration, write them off, send them to hell. This is what we see in the Christian community. This is the vibe that we get. But we have actually been sent into the world, not to condemn, but with the hope of redemption. Our primary lens, through which we should see embezzlers and politicians like Trump, politicians like Hillary, the primary lens through which we should see our transgender friends and our homosexual friends, the primary lens through which we should see that young couple that's living together because that's just the norm, the primary lens through which we should see the drunk guy out there on the streets this afternoon, the primary lens through which we should see them is not, you're condemned, see you later. It's, I have hope of restoration for you. I am so hopeful for you. Third, the third thing that, The Christian community is done in associating with culture. We cut and run rather than creating culture. We condemn, offer condemnation rather than a hope of redemption. And number three, we've compromised. We've compromised. We've gone into the culture and in the name of mission, in the name of associating with culture, we kind of loosen up our convictions. We kind of fiddle, the word I want to say is fiddle fart around with the Bible. (laughs) That's a technical term. We fiddle fart around with the Bible. We take this verse here and we kind of pluck it out and we cut it and then we do some word work with it and then we mess around with it in our minds and we come back to a very clear passage and we say, you know, it doesn't really say this. We have individuals, we have entire swaths of Christianity, entire liberal movements of Christianity, mainline Protestantism that has done this with the Bible now for about 200 years. And what we see in mainline, quote-unquote, confessed Christianity that has liberalized the Bible, liberalized notions of sin, liberalized notions of God, is not Christianity. It is not. It is compromised Christ out. And with no Christ, there is no Christianity. And so what we see here is that our convictions Matter. That thing that's deep down in your gut where you're just like, oh, man, that is wrong, that matters. You can't lose that. And you need to learn to be able to articulate why it's wrong. That's why at a church like Taproot, we're going to spend three weeks talking about sexual immorality so that you guys can get that thing in your gut where you're like, oh, gosh, that just seems wrong, and I don't know what to do about that. I don't know why it's wrong. We'll spend three weeks talking about this is why it's wrong, and this is why it hurts, and this is why God wants to bless in this way. Cut and run? No. We must associate with the culture and create culture, redeem culture. Number two, we can't condemn. We come with a hope of redemption. Number three, we can't compromise. Our convictions matter. Who are we to not associate with? Who are we to not associate with? Paul says in verse 11, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, reviling, drunkenness, swindling, You can't even have lunch with this guy, Paul says. Man, heavy, hard to hear. Paul is saying there is to be a disassociation, and it is with the person who professes faith in Christ. This person is the one who says, I am a believer in Jesus, but whose behavior, and I'm gonna add this, the text doesn't, but other passages do, Whose behavior is an ongoing, unrepentant pattern of egregious, obvious sin. Can I say that just to be very clear? We are not to become a community of people looking around every under every rock of the human soul next to us, where's the sin? I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna disassociate with you. We don't want to become that weird sin-sniffing culture where somebody new comes to our church. Oh yeah, I moved here from North Carolina. I was going to this church, and they're automatically a Christian. The first thing we do is, is sin. Do I smell sin? I'm looking for sin. We don't want to become that. What, what 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 we what we're looking at here? Paul is saying there's to be a disassociation with the brother or the sister who has exhibited an ongoing pattern of very obvious and egregious sin were to turn from them. And there's an interesting thing here that came to my mind. We see these folks lately right down here on 152. Right down there at the corner of 152 and on First Avenue, they have their signs up. Repent, Jesus is coming. Jesus loves you. Turn from your sin. You're gonna burn in hell. We see these folks with their signs. Now, that may or may not have its place. In a lot of ways, I think that they've gone to a place of just condemning the world. They're not really legitimately offering a hope of restoration. Maybe they are. Maybe they are. I don't want to judge them that way. But listen, wouldn't it be more biblical? What Paul is saying here is the first thing you ought to do is take your picketing signs that say, repent, Jesus is returning, and go over to the guy who's divorcing his wife right now and put your pickets down in his front yard and stand there until he repents. The guy who says I'm a Christian, but I'm gonna divorce my wife. I'm not gonna listen to any counsel. I'm making this decision because this is what I feel. Paul is saying take your picketed signs and first go to that man's house and stick it right there in the front yard and stand there saying you need to repent. What Paul is saying is there should be a greater agony, a greater sense of forlornness and longing and angst at sin in the church, unrepented of sin in the church, than sin in the world. And when sin goes on in the church in a pattern that is ongoing and obvious and unrepented of, the disassociation is the means by which God will bring true repentance. we talked a little bit about this last week. We'll develop it a little bit more today. What does Paul say here? He says, if you have somebody who's exhibiting greed, which we've talked about this at staff meeting, if you see somebody who is obviously living in sexual immorality and not repenting, if you know of a business guy, prayerfully not in our church. I haven't met him in our church yet. But if you know of a business guy in our church, and their business practices are just obvious, they're just blatantly, egregiously sinful, if, if there's somebody in our community who is just constantly salting every single conversation with, hey, what do you think about the decisions here? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? I think this, I think that with disrespect or with divisiveness in their hearts, and you've said, look, I want to pray first. I don't want to talk this way about our family, about this brother, about this sister, about this pastor, about this deacon. I want to pray first. Maybe we'll go talk to them face to face, but we're not going to do this this way. You've done that 10 times over, over. This person, this reviler in the body of Christ, Paul says you should reach a point where it's like, you know what, I'm not going to have lunch with you. I'm not going to have lunch. I'm not going to associate with you anymore. In church world, in an organization like Taproot, we actually have a formal process that takes months, most times years, to reach a formal excommunication where we call the church to say, look, for the benefit of this person's soul and for the purity of our church, don't have lunch with them. You are going to disassociate from them. And it's very difficult because right now we all have people in our minds and hearts and faces that we're saying, oh, it just doesn't feel right. If I disassociate from them, they're going to cut themselves off completely from the church. That's exactly right. That's what Paul said last week. Somebody has literally turned over to their own desires, turned over to themselves, and Paul says, let that run its course. It will be for their eternal benefit. But if we only view it through the lens of the temporal 10 years of awkwardness, and we feel like that trumps eternity, then we will deny what God's word is calling us to. Now, there's something very important here to note. In that culture, to eat with somebody was to say, I'm one with you. Our culture, we don't understand community the way that Jesus' culture did. To sit down and have a meal in that culture was to say, I support you, I'm one with you, I'm behind you. And so Paul was making a cultural statement here. He was saying, you need to do whatever it takes with this person, this unrepentant person, to tell them I'm not supporting you, I'm not with you, I'm not behind you. In fact, I am utterly against what you're doing for your good, because I love you. That's what Paul is saying. In our culture, the question we need to ask around this, should I be eating with them or not, is does my presence equal my approval in this process? That's Tim Chaddick. Great quote. Does my presence equal my approval in this process? When we are dealing with somebody who is in unrepentant sin, we need to be very incisive in the way that we need to cut through all the feelings and all the flack and all the cultural stuff, and we need to be able to ask the question, am I doing everything I can in my power and in my reality to point this person to the fact that I do not support what they're doing? I'm not involved in it. That's our responsibility. That may mean sitting down and having a couple meals saying, "The only reason I'm eating with you right now is to tell you this is my last time to eat with you until you repent, until you turn from this. But I'm cutting them off. They're going to leave. They're going to be broken. It's going to hurt them. Yes. For their good. Because prayerfully somewhere out there when they're finally cut off from community, from friends, from family members, they're going to find themselves saying, I've put myself out here and all I have now to eat from is the pods of the swines of the world. And I don't want it. And they return in repentance. I shared this story last week. I'll share it again and then we'll get ready to wrap up. My sister-in-law was a severe methamphetamine addict. We, as a family, had reached the end of our rope with her after years and years of treatment centers and lies and stealing and manipulation and a baby. We reached a point where we all, in consensus, decided, you know, we, we, we are her last bit of community. She had cut everybody else off. All she had left was the drug world. And we were essentially reaching a point where we had to say to Jessica, we are done. You're not allowed in the house. We're not going to eat with you. We're not going to talk to you. And I realize some of you right now are saying, I could never do that. And that's probably why your child or your friend is still living the life they are. I love you. If you think I say these hard things because I'm angry, it's because I've been in the church for 20 years. And this is not a game. This is not a game. And so we said to Jessica, we're done. It was her mother that called the cops on her that landed her in jail. Her mom, her mom calls the cops. She's arrested. She lands in jail, finds out she's pregnant with twins in jail. There she is, cut off from family, cut off from friends, arrested because her mom called the cops on her. And it was finally that that broke down all the facade of her Christianity, all the facade of her confessions, all of it. She's broken and alone. And I go into the jail, and I remember asking her specifically, Jessica, are you broken And her just breaking down, weeping, blubbering there in that jail cell. So that was 12 years ago. She's going on now in her schooling to become a nurse practitioner. She's been sober for 11 years. She has a daughter that's graduating and going on into the Navy this year, another daughter that's up and coming. My kids, my three kids right now are with Auntie Jessica in Idaho, hanging out, going to church, loving Jesus. Does every story where we follow biblical principle end like that? I don't don't know. I don't think so. I could never tell you that it does. I can tell you for sure, though, after 20 years of doing this, that every story where we say my feelings and my ideas on how to handle this situation apart from the Bible are gonna do better, never does. Never. And you, beloved friend, you, beloved brother and sister, because you are Christ's, you will face this. You will. The church, in ever-increasing way, is going to be called to make these hard decisions in this compromised culture that we live in. So we close with this. Paul says, associate with the world in this way to bring correction and joy and redemption to them. Disassociate with the unrepentant brother or sister, and you need to judge within the church. Paul says there needs to be a discernment and a making of decisions about the behaviors and the beliefs within the church community. And so we are called to judge ourselves. Now we need to remember what judgment is in the big scope of things. Judgment is a decision about what is wrong and right and a removal of wrong and the restoration of right. This is what Jesus will do when he comes to the earth. When Jesus returns to establish his kingdom on the whole earth, What he will do is he will say, wrong, 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 and he will remove it completely, but the joy of judgment is he will say, and that is right, and that is right, and that is right, and he will restore it in its fullness. If we are a picture of the kingdom to come, the reason that we judge one another, the reason I invite your judgment into my heart is because I trust that God the Spirit, through your judging of my belief and my behavior, will direct me to be more picturesque, more emblematic, more close to what true humanity is. The removal of all that is wrong and the restoration of right. It's why we open ourselves up in community, one unto another, as scary as that is, and we say, help me see my blind spots. Help me be vulnerable. Speak into my life. Judge this, judge that. Remove what is wrong and restore what is right. This is what we are called to. And I will say, as we wrap this up, that this process may be one of the most important things we at this little tiny local church here in the south end of Seattle practice and engage in, in this culture. The culture that we are surrounded by, I want us to think of ourselves like we are a rock in this swirling river of moral depravity and ethical confusion and... Uh, big word for you, epistemological crisis. We don't know what truth is. We don't know what authority is. We should be right smack dab in the middle of that raging river like a rock, trusting Jesus, trusting our Bibles to the very best of our abilities, obeying and listening to the Lord, yielding ourselves to the judgment of one another, judgment for the joy of rightness being restored and fullness being restored. And here's the only way we can do that. When God sent Jesus into this world, he sent Jesus to do what? To associate with sinners. What did Jesus say? I didn't come to save the righteous. I came to save the sick and the lost. Who do we see Jesus hanging out with? In that culture, we see him hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors. He was called a a glutton and a wine bibber he actually was so associated with the drunks and the swindlers and the thieves of his day that he was accused of it. Oh, may there come a day where somebody thinks you're gay because you have so many gay friends. Huh? That's a weird thought, isn't it? May there come a day where you with total integrity have hung out with such thieves and robbers that people begin to wonder, hey, I wonder what his business practices really are. How do we think that way? May there come a day where people wonder if you're, as a lady, I would suggest as only ladies, people wonder if you're frequenting strip, strip clubs because you have so many sh- friends of that, that ilk. May there come that day for us. Because Jesus did that. If we're following him, then we are looking to associate with the world to bring love and redemption and hope and joy and peace and fullness to them. We were sent there. Pray for that, look for that, go after that. Jesus also was disassociated from the religious. You want to see the snarkiest, most angry remarks of Jesus Christ of Nazareth? It's towards the PhDs of theology of his day. Guys packing the biggest, blackest Bibles with perfect language and not watching R-rated movies, and Jesus says, you're just a bunch of snakes. I'm not buying your baloney. Your coffins, dead men's bones wrapped in religious robes, fools. And Jesus says, You're damned. He says, Hell's gonna be hotter for you in all of your religious garb than it is for any unrepentant prostitute, tax collector, swindler, or reviler. I want the words of Jesus in my life and in my heart. I want them to flow out of me. And we've so sanitized Jesus that words like I'm saying this morning. <gasps> No, this is what his culture would have done. His culture would have been sitting there going, oh my gosh, did he just say that? Yes, that's what he said. That's what he did. But then it all sums up in this glorious judgment, not of the Pharisees, not of the prostitutes, not of the tax collectors, but of Jesus himself. Jesus, who was perfectly associated with the Father in fullness of humanity, goes to a cross, and there the Father disassociates Jesus turns his back on Jesus, punishes Jesus, casts him aside, condemns him, spits on him, separates from him completely, completely separates from Jesus so that those of us who would trust in him entirely, those of us who would say, I believe he created the universe, I believe he's my Lord and Savior, would never be disassociated from him ever again. Ever. We are safe because Jesus has been disassociated. We are utterly and forever mercifully forgiven because Jesus has been forsaken in our place. He rose from that grave and now he affords to those of us who say, I surrender, I believe, I trust, an association with each other and an association with the Father and the Son and the Spirit that is so intimate, Jesus said, I pray that they may be one. That's what we're doing here. So as we prepare to partake of communion this morning, a couple meditation points for us to consider in our hearts. Repent of not associating with who Jesus associated with. If, If that's been your thing, today Jesus is saying, hey kiddo, I love you. I'm reminding you today that I'm sending you into this world to hang out with the darkest of the dark, the blackest of the black, the grossest of the gross. You won't be defiled by that. My blood has made you pure. I want you to prayerfully consider how you might associate with people of the world. Number two. (sighs) I think that some in this room need to have very frank conversations with family members and friends who confess to be believers. I said this last week, and it makes us squirm. It's terribly hard. It begins with a meal that says, you confess to believe this, but your behavior is this. As long as your behavior is unrepentant and it remains this, I need to disassociate myself from you. Well, see, that's why I don't like Christians. So judgmental. Are you confessing to be a Christian? Here's what the text says. I am judging you. I am. I am called to this. For the love of your soul, I want to see the removal of what is wrong and the restoration of what is right, and I will do whatever it takes in trust in the Lord, in trust in the scriptures, in trust in eternity to see that to fruition. As we come to communion, let that person bear out in your mind. Think through this in the context of eternity, Think through, have you given yourself time? Have you had those conversations with that person? Those frank, hard conversations, multitudes of them. I can tell you that all the points of exclusion or or disconnection or disassociation in my life usually were preceded by months and in most cases, years of constant letters and conversations and cups of coffee and phone calls and prayers and years and years and years but then there's a pattern established and we all reach a point with particular people where we just have to say this is the pattern until this pattern is repented of I am disassociating and the reason you do that is because you're going to hold bread in your hand today that represents the disassociation of the son of God for that person to, to, to flippantly say, I believe that he was separated from the Father for me and then sin willingly, I can't do it. I, just, I don't even know how it can be done. Thirdly, as we come to communion this morning, Jesus has been disassociated for us. I recognize that this Sunday morning is, this is anything but a warm, fuzzy, fun Sunday passage. Hey, let's go listen to that recording again. I realize that isn't one of these sermons, but it is these sermons that take us to the cross where we find ourselves holding the broken body of Jesus in memorial and his blood spill, and we find ourselves saying, I am so thankful that Jesus took the disassociation for me, and I only want to be more intimately close to him and intimately close to his people, and I want to usher in the kingdom. The way we take communion here is I'd ask that all of you, there'll be people up here to dip the bread and the wine together. If you'd all hold it, we hold the bread and we take it together as a symbol of our unity and our oneness here before Jesus. Band, if you guys would come on up, we're gonna pray, we're gonna sing, we're gonna worship, and we're gonna end our day to the glory of God. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to to preach the Bible as difficult as it is, as hard to hear as it is. I know in this room right now, Father, there are, there are questions, there are points of fear, but the communion table is being set for us to come and commune with you, and you will direct each of these believers by your Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that we would be directed right into your presence this morning. I pray, first and foremost, that every person listening would be able to have that sense of security that sense of acceptance, that sense of deep love because of what you did. Lord, I want to pray for the faces that come across my mind this morning who are living in unrepentant, belligerent sin. And as a pastor, there's hundreds of them. Literally, I, there's hundreds of them over the years. And Father, I'm begging you, that you would bring them to the end of themselves. I thank you for bringing me to the end of myself. I want to pray for the one who is in here this morning who's been pushing and being obstinate that today would be the day you've brought them here to bring them to the end of themselves and that they would joyfully surrender to your goodness. Lord, I want to pray that you would bless this church with mission and vision and passion to be associated with the world in such a way like Jimmy Carter doing interviews in Playboy to say, Lust is sin. (laughs) That's amazing. God, as we sing to you this morning, may there be such a lifting of the heart, a sense of your presence, your goodness upon us, your grace fulfilling us and satisfying us. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And this morning here, Father, as the veil between heaven and earth thins and this picture of what will be becomes a little bit more clear in this room, may you invigor us with passion hope, restoration, joy. We exalt you in every way, and we surrender and submit to you in fullness of faith, embracing your forgiveness joyfully and without question. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand and